Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, in the first episode of season six of Queen of the Sciences, we are bringing you the transfiguration of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are bringing you this topic, not only because the transfiguration is just a few weeks away, at least for those of you who are following along in the church year, according to the revised common lectionary, and therefore you'll either be preaching about it or hearing a sermon about it, but also because I have a new book. Yes, that's right. I have written a book called Seven Ways of Looking at the Transfiguration, and I am uh, initially bringing it to the world via a Kickstarter, my very first Kickstarter. I did mention this at the end of season five, and that Kickstarter starts today. So please, uh, if you are super excited and can't even wait to hear this episode, go right now to Kickstarter and you can search for Sarah Henlicky Wilson, Seven Ways of Looking at the Transfiguration. You can just Google Kickstarter, Sarah Henlicky Wilson, Transfiguration, and you will find it. And um, But if you need to be persuaded, stay with us now. Dad and I will be talking about the transfiguration for a while here, and we think you will be intrigued. So Dad, now here comes the confessional part. The reason why I ended up writing a whole book about the transfiguration is because, as listeners know, I uh, was ordained a long time ago, but spent about 10 years not preaching or serving in a regular congregation. When I got to Tokyo Lutheran, I think it was only by my third transfiguration Sunday that I thought to my Myself, I have nothing left to say about this. In fact, I would say the, the main thing that I took from the transfiguration story was like when camp is over and it's time to go home and you're all depressed, it's okay. Jesus goes with you back home again. And I think actually the transfiguration story is pretty big in camp ministry, you know, from the high to on the mountaintop down to the low, back on the plains. But um, uh, uh, by year four, I was like, there's got to be more to the transfiguration than I figured out so far. And that is when I took the deep dive that has resulted in a book. Yes, and I have had the uh, a pleasant experience of reading your draft chapters, uh, and I, I think you have discovered a great deal more about the Transfiguration that any of us preachers have been aware of, but we'll get to that shortly. Let me just begin by saying, Sarah, that actually on close examination, the story of the Transfiguration is baffling in many respects. <laughs> And first of all, it seems to be a revelation of the glory of the risen and victorious Lord. There's even a hint of this interpretation at the end uh, of the story, uh, especially in Mark, as the disciples descend the mountain. Jesus commands them to be silent about what they've seen uh, until they should, the Son of Man should rise from the dead. And the uh, uncomprehending disciples would deliberate what resurrection of the dead could possibly mean. So, according to our sources, uh, the, the, the witnesses of this extraordinary event were baffled by what they saw. And I think, you know, Sarah, we readers of the gospel, say beginning with Mark, could also be baffled. We could ask it. <laughs> Isn't the story totally out of order here? The vision of Jesus in heavenly glory, granted to Peter, James, and John, appears in the middle of his earthly journey. If we look more closely, we see it comes at a critical turning point in it. Jesus has resolutely turned his face to go up to Jerusalem, there to be rejected, to suffer and die and be buried, and at the last day raised again. What are we to make of this perplexing order of events? Yeah, I, I I think your your point about where it comes in the story is really important to understanding it because in Mark, which we're taking to be the first written down gospel, it's at the dead center. It's right at the beginning of chapter nine in a book that has 16 chapters, the 16th, a little bit on the short side if you go with the original ending. And um, and so it is very much a linchpin turning point story. But as And as you said, it, it bears a strange relationship to the resurrection because on the one hand, the gloriousness seems to somehow be a prefiguration of the of the resurrection and yet at the same time it clearly does not resolve or explain anything to this, the disciples they're more confused by what they've seen this isn't like a oh jesus was transfigured now we know he'll be risen from the dead instead they come down the mountain saying what is he talking about this rising from the dead 
So there's a relationship, <laughs> but it's not in any way a clear relationship between the transfiguration and the resurrection. You know, I could I could mention at this point, Sarah, that um, in my doctoral dissertation, lo, those many years ago, um, um, I actually thought I came up with a solution to that very question about the bafflement to the disciples in the story. But I pointed out that it wouldn't have been so baffling to the readers of the gospel or hearers of the gospel of Mark. And that was kind of how the angle I took on on a solution. Now, as you mentioned, in Mark 16, 8, the gospel breaks off abruptly with the women fleeing in fear at the angelic announcement of Jesus's resurrection. Now, why is a conclusion there possible? I argued it's because the Easter victory is represented in the middle of Mark's gospel at the transfiguration. Thus, readers, now not the disciples within the story, but the readers, would know from this point forward that the one about to be crucified is already the risen one. When we go to the original readers, then Mark is challenging them. Can they, will they, then, be faithful to death now in impending persecution, as those first followers of Jesus had proved not to be? So that was kind of the the way I argued in my doctoral dissertation. Hmm. So I know, Dad, you've been doing this series of reminiscences on your brand new blog. That's folkspaulhenlicky.com. Look at theological ramblings. They're not that rambling, actually. But you had one about your father, and you were realizing all the ways that your thoughts were more his thoughts than you had realized. Well, I have to say, working on this project has been something of the same for me, because I always knew, as long as I can remember, that your dissertation was on the Gospel of Mark. But I never knew that it dealt with, first, the strange ending of Mark, which is something I discovered independently in my New Testament Mark class in seminary with Clifton Black. And I was totally blown away by the idea that there was this shorter ending and it was a weird ending and an abrupt ending. And I got really into it. And um, I had no idea that that was a major concern of your dissertation. And then working on this Transfiguration book, it's only after I sent you most of the chapters to read that you told me, oh, by the way, the Transfiguration was a big part of my argument in my dissertation. So I have twice (laughs) recapitulated your own interests without any conscious awareness of that I was doing so. So as you often remark, the apple does not fall far from the tree. And let the church know that the daughter has never read her father's doctoral dissertation. I think the father does not want anyone to read his doctoral dissertation. That's always a distinct (laughs) impression I've had. Yeah, right. I wasn't very happy with it. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, I will say maybe that this is part of the uh, f- the familial theological method also, as you were in systematic theology, but you wrote about the gospel of Mark. And I've, I've remarked before on how important it has been for me as a theologian to be very much engaged with scripture, not only engaging with theologians of times past or present. So I think that is a common term here. Right. And that, I think a lot of our listeners like the fact that this podcast takes scripture with theological seriousness. But let's just go back for a moment more before we go on to your discoveries um, about how the liturgical calendar frames our understanding of the transfiguration as this episode marks the transition from the action of Jesus as healer uh, to his suffering uh, uh, as the one who's been afflicted by tortures and wounds also psychologically tortured by betrayal, denial, and abandonment. It's the transition from his merciful words of forgiveness to his condemnation as a blasphemer and a rebel, from adulation to rejection climaxing in the death of the Holy One of God in our midst upon the shameful Roman gibbet. So, liturgically, the passion of the Lord we call to mind in the season of Lent, beginning on Ash Wednesday, a short three days after Transfiguration Sunday, marks the turning point in Jesus' story. The mighty Son of God, who, like Joshua or David of old, came as deliverer from the anti-divine powers of devil, death, and sin, ends up hanging forlorn, 
truly dying on a Roman stake, finally defeated, laid lifeless in a tomb. How, how much more dramatic a turning a point can you find in all of ancient <laughs> literature? Very true. Very true. Well, actually, I have some fun facts about Transfiguration as a liturgical holiday. Would you like to hear them? Sure. <laughs> okay. Well, the, why, the reason I, I bring it up is because the having the transfiguration take place at this point in the liturgical year is, are you ready for this, Dad? A Lutheran liturgical innovation. I bet you didn't know that. No, I didn't know that. No. Yeah. So the transfiguration started to be observed as a church festival fairly early on. There's pretty clear evidence by the year four or 500 that some of the Eastern churches were observing it. And eventually it came to be observed across the Eastern churches on August 6th. So first of all, that tells you this is not it was not originally slotted into the life cycle part of the church year, because obviously it makes more sense to have it in the late winter, early spring. Uh, if you're following this, the life story of Jesus, than it does to have it in August. Well, the reason why it ended up on August 6th, uh, according to the best possible reconstructions, because this was a long time ago, is because August 6th is 40 days before Holy Cross Day. And that Holy Cross Day was already well established because of Helena, you know, discovering the fragments of the true cross, and that became a widespread liturgical holiday. So in a certain sense, transfiguration on August 6th to Holy Cross in September something, 22nd or something, is kind of like a mini Lent later in the year from Jesus turning his face to Jerusalem at the transfiguration to his crucifixion on Holy Cross Day. So that's kind of cool, don't you think? That's interesting. And how did the Lutherans change that? Well, it first came to the West um, in a slightly less uh, elevated way because um, in the 15th century, there was a lot of battles with the Turks and there was a victory of the Hungarians over the Turks at Belgrade. And in Thanksgiving for that, Pope Calixtus decreed that the Transfiguration on August 6th also would become an annual festival of the Western Church. So although it had, again, been locally observed in parts of the Latin Church, it was only in 1457. So obviously not long before the Reformation that it became a, a part of the Roman church calendar. So then finally, when the Lutherans are doing their liturgical revisions and um, trying to both uh, get back to earlier practice as well as, as altar and better keeping with the gospel, they were not particularly committed to the August 6th date, nor the uh, victory over the Turks aspect of it, not that they were opposed to victory over the Turks, but um, it was actually their decision that it made more sense to make it part of the life cycle part of the church year. And so that was the idea as uh, since the baptism of our Lord is the first Sunday in the epiphany season, then the transfiguration of our Lord would be the last Sunday in the epiphany season. And of course, because he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, then that would be the transition into the Lenten period. Very interesting history, Sarah. That's just, that's really remarkable. And one last little liturgical detail, so which is that um, the Roman lectionary, which is similar to but not identical to the Revised Common Lectionary, actually places the Transfiguration and the second Sunday in Lent. So it's, uh, although not the same exact placement as in um, most mainline Protestant churches, it, it did decide to incorporate the Transfiguration into the life cycle of Jesus part of the church year. But it still observes the um, Feast of the Transfiguration on August 6th, as do Anglican churches, which I discovered um, when I lived in Strasbourg and uh, Andrew and Zeke and I attended an Anglican parish there. And I was invited to preach on the last Sunday of the Epiphany season, which had the reading from the Revised Common Lectionary of... Um, or whatever, the Anglican lectionary is very similar to the RCL that had transfiguration. And so I preached about the transfiguration, but I talked about it as if that day were Transfiguration Sunday, which of course it is for Lutherans. And that was also the Sunday we had a new rector arrived who was one of these, um, let's say, very, very fierce and inflexible liturgical types. And afterwards, the only thing he said to me is, this is not the Sunday of the transfiguration. The transfiguration takes place in August. And I was like, well, welcome to church. Nice to meet you, too. <laughs> so that's how I first learned that Catholics and Anglicans have transfiguration twice a year. So I just want to say, any Catholics and Anglicans out there listening, you have even more need for my book than everybody else does, because you might be preaching on this twice a year, <laughs> not just once. 
<laughs> okay, that's a good spin. Thank you, sir. Hey, uh, before we before we go on with your research discoveries in this book project, tell us a little bit about the kind of methodology you used in uh, because you know. Let me just preface this by saying, as one who was trained in form criticism and source criticism in the classical historical critical ways and has gradually over the course of his life shifted to a literary critical approach, um, which is more uh, open to theological reading, um, I was quite struck by uh, your method, which I would give the kind of um, nerdy name uh, to it as intertextuality or something like that. But you explain your method in your own words, please. Sure. Well, I, I, I did not get that kind of training that you did. I started in seminary right with a more literary theological reading to begin with. So I, I don't, maybe because I wasn't trained in it, I don't share the kind of hostility towards historical critical method that some theological readers of the Bible do. Like I, I often read it and I find it helpful because it helps you understand what's going on and what was actually happening then and what, what you can say about, you know, Second Temple Judaism at Jesus' time or the likely priority in time of the Gospel of Mark uh, in, in its written downness compared to others, so I, I have no objection to using those methods at all. But they're not—they're not theological methods; they're scholarly methods, and so they're a foundation. But when I—I I guess when I get to interpreting Scripture, I suppose my preset is simply: I'm just going to take what it's saying at face value, which doesn't mean literalistically in a wooden or fundamentalist sense. I don't think I'm really capable of that. But at the same time, I'm not particularly interested in trying to prove or disprove the the historical veracity or or the claims there. I'm trying to, I guess I'm really just trying to understand what is the scripture trying to say. And I do that on the assumption, first of all, um, as I've, I've tried to stress many a time in our podcast, as well as I do in my preaching, which is that there is no understanding the New Testament without the Old Testament. Any interpretation you make of the New Testament apart from the Old Testament is simply wrong, because those are all of the conceptual and imagistic and symbolic and doctrinal building blocks from which the New Testament authors are working. Now, I'm not opposed to exploring other influences, like I've as I've been reading lately, um, Greek Hellenism is far more pervasive and even before Jesus' time and the hundreds of years leading up to Jesus' time. So to understand that context is is absolutely necessary too. And I do a little bit of that, but I'm mostly interested here in, in weaving a great deal of connections between the New Testament attestations of the transfiguration and what, what is it that they are using and employing from the Old Testament to make sense of what they have experienced in Jesus. And then by extension, how this modifies their understanding as God to Father as along with their experience of the Holy Spirit. So I would say I move pretty freely among the books of the Bible um, as uh, in, in, the, in the, the writing itself. I'm constantly going back between Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they each have a transfiguration story and the subtle differences I think really are fascinating and tell us a lot, which I guess I should mean means also I am not at all stressed out by differences in the in the biblical witness. I know that there's a a very old tendency to want to harmonize and smooth over the differences. To me, the differences are pointing out really important things, and I'm quite interested in them. But I guess because I don't need to solve the historical problem in order to make a theological understanding of the gospel, um, I can kind of hold both of those things together. Um, and that's what I'm, I'm trying to do here. I guess I'd call it cross-canonical, uh, but I like intertextual as well as a method. Or, or even more classically Reformation scripture interpreting scripture, right? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And I would mention that your your comparisons of Mark, Matthew, and Luke are classical exercises in what was called redaction criticism. Okay, sure. Right, right, right. Yeah, so I, I am assuming all through this that Mark is the first written down account of the Transfiguration as well as the Gospel story generally, and that Matthew and Luke both know him, and if they are altering what Mark is saying, they have a reason for doing so, and that is illuminating in and of itself. Right. Very good. Okay, let's press on to some of your details. 
Okay, well, there are um, seven chapters of this book, seven ways of looking at the transfiguration. And just to uh, go through them quickly, they are metamorphosis, because that is actually the Greek word behind transfiguration. Uh, There's one on Elijah uh, in eschatological perspective. There's one on Moses. There is one on tabernacles, which is what Peter offers to build. There is one on the eyewitnesses, Peter, James, and John. Uh, But it's 2 Peter, uh, the strange attestation to the transfiguration in 2 Peter that specifically calls the three of them eyewitnesses. There is one on the cloud, which is the presence of God the Father. And finally, the last one is on glory, which I know is a word that many Lutherans are allergic to. So I will tell you right now, one of my burdens in this book is to render glory accessible to anxious, cross-centered Lutherans once again. Very good. Very good. And you should mention there also that you resort to the epistles of the New Testament and an especially interesting excursus on Paul in 2 Corinthians, I thought. Okay, well, let's. why don't we pick up from there? Obviously, we're not going to cover all, all seven chapters here, but since that one captured your imagination, tell me, tell me what you're thinking there. That, uh, that, that's the whole business about glory, uh, Paul's light of glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, you you lift up, you exegete that passage in Second Corinthians, and then you ask rhetorically, how can Paul not be alluding to the transfiguration? <laughs> he doesn't spell it out. He doesn't tell the story, but it sure sounds like he's commenting on what is happening in the transfiguration story. And then you, you go into his Greek word, and and you transliterate it into English as transschematize. Christ will transschematize the shape of our humiliated bodies by configuring them to his own glorious body. And then you draw the moral. The body, whether it's Moses's or Jesus's or ours, is intended is the intended recipient of God's glory. Glory is the form of resurrection promised, but not apart from suffering and death, right? And so then you go through a lot of other places in Paul where we find the same idea. Sharing in the form of Christ leads to being glorified by God. Um, And I would just connect this with the statement of the uh, second century church father, Irenaeus, that the glory of God is a living human being. Hmm. Well, there's a whole bunch of things to say from this. So first of all, as is well known, Paul rarely talks in any detail about events in the life of Jesus. He assumes that you know them. So of course, he talks about the cross and he talks about the resurrection and hardly anything else. So you would not go looking to Paul to hear about the transfiguration. Um, I did not come across any connection with this at all. But when I started following the trail from that word metamorphosis, uh, which is what both um, Mark and Matthew use, they say Jesus was metamorphosis we could say, if we're using the Greek form, it's transfigured if we're using the Latin form, which has become standard in English. And I was like, oh, well, isn't isn't that in Philippians 2, the form of Christ? And it is indeed morphe. So just following the trail of the morphes in Pauline language, I stumbled onto 2 Corinthians. And this, this stretches through three chapters, through 3, 4, and 5. Paul is talking about this idea. And all of the All of the key terms and images of the transfiguration are there. Um, Let me um, actually read a little passage for you here. Chapter 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And all of this, this passage, is built on Paul's extensive discussion of Moses who put the veil over his face because he was radiant from being in God's presence on the top of Mount Sinai, which, of course, is a major, I mean, probably the most important allusion in Mark's account of the Transfiguration. And Moses, of course, is there on the Mount of Transfiguration. So Paul is building off of all of this image of God's glory, the cloud on the top of Mount Sinai, Moses' radiant face, and then he builds up to this argument about 
letting light shine out of darkness, but specifically from the face of Jesus Christ. Um, and it is um, Matthew in particular who stresses that that um, Jesus' face shone like the sun. Uh, Luke is a, a little more modest. He just says Jesus' face is different. <laughs> he, he doesn't want to specify too much. Um, and then even more remarkably, Paul continues the discussion in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians talking about tabernacles, which is the thing that Peter proposed to build for, for Jesus. Is Moses and Elijah. So once you kind of, again, in this kind of intertextual way, follow the, the key words and the key images and the key Old Testament allusions, by the end of it, I was like, as I put it rhetorically, how can Paul not be alluding here to the transfiguration, which would be quite extraordinary to me if we also have a Pauline attestation of the transfiguration. I was not expecting that. That's an interesting discovery. Um, but let's back up a little bit, Sarah. What about the very notion of metamorphosis? What about the very notion of, um, of, of, of being transfigured or transformed? Uh, and it's a, it, um, in the transfiguration story, the verb is in the past tense and in the passive voice. And so all it really means is changed. But then, you know, you kind of, again, ask a rhetorical question. All it means, as if it were obvious what change is, how can something be something else and still be itself? Is there continuity of identity or rupture? Does the change reveal something that was always there and hidden, or does it create something entirely new? If one form dissolves and another appears, does the reality behind the form perdure or vanish? What is the relationship, Sarah the philosopher asks, between being and becoming? Isn't that one of, I, I always say being and becoming and the one and the many are the two oldest philosophical questions and still nobody knows the answer to either of them. <laughs> so yeah, there's something yeah. about this transfiguration story that is front loading the problem of what it means to to change and be the same or not be the same, what's going on? So um, there's a wonderful collection of essay of, of sorry of sermons, patristic sermons on the Transfiguration, like all of them in Greek in the East from the beginning to the year 1000 roughly. And um, and of course, not surprisingly, being uh, Greek speakers, they're quite interested in this topic of metamorphosis because in the background are a lot of ancient Greek myths of metamorphosis. Um, a lot of them are etiologies, which means stories explaining how something came to be. So a lot of them in like Ovid's metamorphoses are about a particular species of birds and there's some usually tragic and horrible tale behind uh, how they became the bird that they, it was a person who suffered or, um, you know, lots of uh, nasty sexual violence in, in those myths or a pining love or horrible parents or murders, whatever. So um, the, the Greek fathers are very keen to say that Jesus' metamorphosis is not like this. And they tend to fall on the side of saying that, Je that Jesus' transfiguration is a revelation of what was always there, but we never saw before. And not surprisingly, because they're still so much fighting the battle over the doctrine of the Trinity. For them, the transfiguration is one of the supreme moments of revelation of the full divinity of the Son. And um, as far as that goes, I have I have no objection. There's clearly a connection going on here with also the baptism of Jesus, where we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Of course, there is no spirit specified in the transfiguration story, but the relationship of Father and Son is definitely heightened and made even clearer, I would say, in the transfiguration story. Um, but um, the question is, does, does Jesus' transfiguration alter him? or reveal something about him. And what's striking to me is that the verb of choice in Matthew and Mark is change, metamorphose, his form changes. So that, that asks, does something happen to him uniquely in the transfiguration that wasn't there before, or does it show us something that we already know? And I think the fact that it is in, existing in some sort of um, a dialectical tension with the resurrection itself is telling us that, um, well, actually probably what's telling us more than anything is that Luke decides to delete the verb. Luke does not like the metamorphose verb. He takes it out. So we still call it the transfiguration in Luke's gospel, but he does not use the word at all. And uh, second Peter doesn't use the word in its version and nor does Paul. So, uh, well, dad, I, I've rambled on here. What do you think? Is Jesus changed or not? And what does it mean for Jesus to change? <laughs> well, I, I'd rather uh, deflect the question back to you because 
You you make two <laughs> points about this. You make you no know, really. You make two points about this. You say in the resurrection accounts, Jesus is absolutely certainly definitely not the figure robed in white or dazzling like lightning. Uh, and precisely at the moment you'd most expect him to be set apart by his appearance, he is not. He's just an ordinary schmo on the seashore of, <laughs> of the Lake of Galilee, yelling out to the disciples, come have breakfast, right? Um, so you argue that according to these gospel Easter narratives, the risen Jesus bears little, I would say, no resemblance to the transfigured Jesus. And yet, at the same time, you want to affirm that the evangelists certainly do not intend you to doubt that the Jesus of the Transfiguration and the Jesus of the Resurrection are the same Jesus. And so, what conclusion do you draw from that, these two seemingly contradictory of affirmations that you're making? <laughs> Now, listeners, I want you to know the reason Dad is pressing this question so much is because I sent him chapters one through six, but I did not send him chapter seven. I would not tell him the answer to the riddle that he is pressing me to tell him here now. And I'm not going <laughs> to tell you either because I want you guys to get the book. <laughs> so let, let me just say this much. It is a very satisfying answer. And it was one I did not expect going into it at all. So um, I, I will uh, urge you all the more to, to find out what is the connection between the transfigured and the resurrected Jesus. But but in order to satisfy you a little bit, I will just give this teaser, which is that to observe, first of all, that metamorphosed is not in any way applied to the risen Jesus. Um, just like as you were quoting from me there, he doesn't his his presence is not altered the way it is in the transfiguration. And I just realized there's probably a lot of confusion that comes from artworks of the risen Jesus, which tend to make him dazzling and glorious. But in the, the scriptural accounts, he is not dazzling and glorious in the resurrection, only in the transfiguration. So those two have been kind of elided in art. And the second little teaser I will give is that when Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about the resurrection body, when he says we shall be changed, he does not use the word metamorphose. He uses an entirely different verb. So whatever is going on in the resurrection is definitely not whatever is going on in the, the transfiguration in terms of metamorphosis. It is a different kind of thing. But again, I'm going to be difficult and withholding and not tell you what the answer is. So you'll all want to go and buy my book. <laughs> okay, well, I think uh, having read your rough draft, I deserve a free copy. <laughs> okay, Dad, you will you will get the seventh chapter in due course. But okay. um, well, so, but but not to leave leave the listeners so unsatisfied. Actually, we get, there are a few other really cool things that we can we can back up and talk about here. So, Dad, uh, what is your preference? Would you like to talk about Elijah, Moses, or Tabernacles? Well, let's begin with Elijah because that's that's important to the to your interpretation of the of the first version of the transfiguration story in the gospel of mark because um, you point out how jesus says in mark 9:13 that elijah has come so why don't you tell us your what you, how you took that affirmation of jesus post transfiguration declaring that elijah has indeed already come Sure. So um, besides the um, camp is over, come back home preaching of the transfiguration, the other thing I think you hear most often in transfiguration preaching is that Mos uh, Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop represent the law and the prophets. So uh, a, a more uh, Old Testament friendly interpretation says, oh, they're there to affirm Jesus. You know, they're all on the same team. A less Old Testament friendly version is to say Jesus supersedes them both. And often Peter's invitation to build the tabernacles as seen that Peter's error is to put Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah, when in fact he should see that he's better than them both. He supersedes them um, with a C, not with an S, which is the bad kind of supersession when we're talking New Testament and Old Testament. But in Mark's telling of the transfiguration, um, he says Elijah and Moses, not Moses and Elijah. Uh, the, and the order is odd. Matthew and Luke both switch them back. So it's Moses first. Mark, of course, knew perfectly well that Moses came before Elijah chronologically. It would make more sense to say Moses first. So the fact that Mark is saying Elijah first is has to be deliberate. 
And um, moreover, the the assumption that they represent the law and the prophets is actually just kind of a, 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 a lazy Gentile Christian assumption. Moses was remembered probably more as a prophet than he was as a lawgiver. That's kind of an, an you know, a, a anti-Torah, anti-legalism, Christian, probably Lutheran move to associate um, Moses with that. But in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord says, I will raise up a prophet for you like Moses. So he's remembered really as the prophet par excellence, not as not not uh, even more than he is the lawgiver. And Elijah is actually not called a prophet all that often in the biblical text. He's more often called the man of God, and he's often in conversation with cohorts of prophets. They're the ones who are called prophets. So, so th- this is probably a false um, assumption on a Christian interpreter's part to see them as the law and the prophets. So Elijah specifically is much more an eschatological figure. If you read Malachi, which is often um, comes up in in advents um the last the last bit of of Malachi is saying that Elijah will come again. And then, of course, you turn the page to the New Testament and you start uh, meeting John the Baptist. And that is the connection that Christians have always made. But what I saw when I started looking more carefully is that there is a major subplot in the Gospel of Luke as to the identity of the Elijah who is to come as the eschatological figure. And we, I think, just assume, well, of course, John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. But if you actually trace out the story carefully, there is no connection made between John the Baptist and Elijah until Jesus makes it after the transfiguration. In fact, Jesus himself is regularly thought to be maybe Elijah. There's a, a number of instances in Mark leading up to the transfiguration where that, that is um, proposed. And when Jesus, just before the transfiguration, asks his disciples, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? The false theories include that Jesus is Elijah. That's wrong. Peter gets it right to say Jesus is the Christ. So that is just before the transfiguration. And then just after the transfiguration, they're coming down the mountain. The disciples are super weirded out about this death talk, cross talk, rising from the dead talk. So they change the topic and say, so why do they, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And so this is going back to the question of, so are are you Elijah, Jesus? Like, we, no, you're not Elijah. We know you're not Elijah. You're Christ. So where does the Elijah part come? And that's where Jesus specifically clearly says, Elijah has already come and they did to him whatever they pleased. And the disciples realize, oh, the Elijah that is to come is John. Okay, now we get it. But what Jesus wants to draw attention to there is that Elijah came again and suffered. He did not actually restore all things. So probably the controversy underlying here is the idea that if Elijah came again, then he Elijah himself would restore all things. Well, clearly, not all things have been restored. <laughs> so Jesus is not necessarily disputing that Elijah came. He says clearly it's John, but he does dispute the interpretation that Elijah would restore all things. No, in fact, Elijah comes and suffers. And if Elijah suffers, how much more will the Son of Man suffer? Right. And there's also, Sarah, in this connection, you commented about the uh, uh, odd statement of Jesus that those standing here will see all these things, the kingdom of God coming in power. And how did you interpret that Right. So I, I, I don't know if this is always properly included in the Transfiguration reading, but it really should be. The, the verse in Mark right before the Transfiguration story begins, this is chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Amen, I say to you that certain ones of those standing here will no way, no how taste death until they should have seen the kingdom of God having come in power. That's my translation. The no way, no how is because it's a an intensive double negative in Greek. Which, and in Greek, they don't cancel each other out. They make it stronger. And so then immediately after that, he takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. And so it says certain ones of those standing here. So it seems to me what Mark is doing is exactly prefacing the transfiguration story with bringing these certain disciples who are standing there with him. They are the ones who are going to see the kingdom of God having come in power. Now, of course, what everyone is hoping and expecting for the kingdom of God having come in power is something much more obviously powerful and much more obviously kingdom-like. As in, you know, let's boot out the Romans, let's put a Davidic king back on the throne, let's shore up the borders, you know, and and have our our kingdom come right now here in the land. Um, And instead, what Jesus shows them is himself 
transfigured. But also, again, this transfiguration story is so carefully hedged in. As it is hedged in with Elijah talk, it is also hedged in with cross talk. And as we know, after Peter correctly identifies Jesus as the Christ, then Jesus gives his first passion prediction, which Peter hates so much, he tries to teach Jesus better. And that's where we get the horrible get behind me Satan line. And then again, on the other side of the transfiguration, Jesus gives his second passion prediction, which again, they don't like and don't understand. So it seems that a whole lot of reconfigurations of expectations are already happening in the transfiguration story. What does it mean to be the Christ? What does it mean to be Elijah who shall come? What does it mean to restore all things? What does the kingdom of God having come in power look like? And all of these are are forced to be connected with the cross. And of course, we know that is such the, so that's really the burden of Mark's whole gospel is to make the cross essential and necessary and connected to everything else about Jesus in a way that clearly was still deeply troubling and problematic even to his first auditors. Yeah, absolutely. The, the Mark's account of the death of Christ is the apocalypse. It is the revelation. Uh, that the Gospel of Mark has been straining toward from the beginning. That's really great, Sarah. Very interesting stuff. Let's uh, let's switch gears now. And uh, one of you know one of the most interesting thing preachers have to deal with is Peter's kind of evidently incompetent suggestion that he build three three booths for Elijah, Mo- Moses, and Jesus. And uh, I think you have just an absolutely fascinating account of that. Thanks. I would have to say, uh, as you can uh, probably tell from my enthusiasm and for having written a a whole book about this, I found so many amazing and cool things about the transfiguration through this project. But I have to say, out of all of them, the bit about Peter and the tabernacles is my favorite. It did more to open my eyes to what's going on in this whole story than anything else. So, so listeners, I'm giving you this one for free. (laughs) Please don't, please go back the book still. Please, please, please. Okay. Anyway, so... Peter classically says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. And how about I build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And as long as I can remember, the way I've always heard this interpreted is, Peter, you big dolts, you want to capture the glory of God. You want to routinize the charisma. You want to fix it down here on the mountaintop and keep it all for yourself. (laughs) And it's understood to be Peter's essentially, you know, thick headed and selfish nature. Well, of course, uh, Peter is, I think, a deeply endearing character because he exemplarily gets everything wrong. But how he gets it wrong is really important. And he does get it wrong, but I think I understand much better now why he gets it wrong. So we're going to have to do a little bit of um, etymological and linguistic fun and games here to get to the point. But okay, so in the Greek, in which, of course, the New Testament is written, what Peter offers to build is a skene, which you can simply translate as tent. But it can also be translated as booth, and it can also be translated as tabernacle. These are all related concepts. A tent is just, you know, what you see a Middle Eastern nomad putting up for the night. A booth, um, even in in modern English, so it has other associations like uh, Lucy's psychiatric uh, help, five cents, please, right? But it means a temporary structure. A booth is not meant to be permanent. And the tabernacle refers to the tent of meeting in the wilderness, which was mobile and traveled with the people of Israel until the temple was built and became God's permanent address on Mount, Sin- on, on Mount Sinai. So the thing is, in the Septuagint, which is the oldest Greek translation or set of translations of the Hebrew Old Testament into what was much more widely spoken, even by a lot of Jews in the at Jesus' time and even before. So these are historic translations of the Old Testament into Greek. And there is very strong evidence that the New Testament authors knew the Septuagint and often used it, though sometimes it seems they made their own independent translations into Greek. Anyway, in the Septuagint Greek, there are three different Hebrew words for tent, that's ohel, the, for booth, that's sukkah, and for tabernacle, that's mishkan. But the Greek Septuagint just uses the word skene for all three. So there is a kind of linguistic melding of these three things. And of course, they are, they are related conceptually and in practice. So it, it makes sense to have the same word. 
So when we get to Peter, when he's offering to build the structure, what is he thinking? <laughs> is he thinking of just a tent? Is he thinking of a booth? Or is he thinking of like the tabernacle? Uh, when John in chapter one says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, that is the skene word, but it's obviously referring to the tent of meeting where the Lord's actual presence is. So now Jesus is the presence of God, the way the tab the cloud settling on the tabernacle in the wilderness was God. So is that what Peter means? Or does he just, no one seems to think he means just a tent. So the other possibility is that he means uh, a sukkah. And so uh, listeners might be familiar with the Old Testament pilgrimage festival of Sukkot. That is the plural of sukkah. And it refers to the third of the three great pilgrimage festivals of Israel. The first one's Passover. The second one is Pentecost. Yes, Pentecost was a Jewish holiday before it was a Christian holiday. And Sukkot is the final one. Sukkot is the festival of the ingathering of the, of the final harvest. So it's the last harvest festival of the year. Um, Jews still today observe it by building temporary structures and decorating them with greenery. And there are several um, plants that you are supposed to collect and wave and you live in the these temporary shelters to remind you both of the traveling in the wilderness, but also um, of uh, it's actually worldwide a common thing to build a temporary structure out in the field during the harvest because you want to be right there and gather it all in while it's ripe and get it before, you know, uh, the late autumn sets in and it gets too cold. Uh, what Sukkot had become over, you know, many hundreds of years of practice was the uh, and it was actually the ultimate festival. So for Christians, Passover and Pentecost have completely overtaken our imagination. We practically forget about Sukkot altogether. But even Josephus, a Jewish writer at Jesus' time, says that Sukkot is the festival of the Jews. It is the culminating festival of the year. It's the third of the three pilgrimage festivals. And it is the completed harvest, which means over time, it took on these eschatological overtones for when God will complete the true harvest, the entire harvest. And the prophets use it. It's very important in Nehemiah when the exiles come back to Jerusalem, they start practicing Sukkot again, and they even build their temporary structures. So with all of this in the background, and of course, uh, documented in much greater length in the book, what I think is going on when Peter offers to build tabernacles is this. He has just identified that the Christ has come. And this is the eschatological hope. Christ is going to come and set everything right. He's going to uh, restore all things. But as soon as Peter figures that out, Jesus says to him, no, 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 no. I'm going to go and die. I'm going to go suffer and die on a cross. This is not the story of Sukkot. This is the story of Passover. This is Jesus talking about being the lamb who will be slain and whose blood will set people free. That is a Passover st story that Jesus is trying to tell Peter he's in. But then Peter gets to the mountaintop. He knows Jesus is the Christ. Moses and Elijah show up. Those are, you know, if, uh, again, Deuteronomy 18, a, a new prophet is coming. Elijah is the sign of the end. Peter says, oh, no, 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 we're not in a Passover story. We're in a Sukkot story. We're at the end. We have already achieved the goal of eschatological ingathering with the glorious Lord and his Old Testament buddies who are signs of the end. And so that's why Peter offers to build three booths, because we are at Sukkot. We are here celebrating the end. It's all over. Everything is fine now. <laughs> so the problem with Peter is not that he doesn't... Actually, Peter is so close. Like, he understands that there is something of enormous eschatological significance happening here, but he wants to skip right to the end. He does not want Passover to happen. And of course, Pentecost isn't even on his mind. And so by rejecting the tabernacles, what Jesus is saying is, no, we are not at Sukkot yet. We still have to go through Passover. And of course, that's exactly the pilgrimage festival that is going to take Jesus to Jerusalem for his crucifixion in all four Gospels. Wow, I see why that's your favorite discovery. That's just so cool, Sarah. <laughs> that's quite a, quite an amazing um, ex explanation of Peter's mistake. I, I really like it. And speaking of Peter... I thought another thing that was very fascinating in your book is uh, how you drew in the second letter of Peter, so-called, uh, and its witness to the transfiguration. Can we talk about that a little bit? 
Sure. This is so Second Peter is an odd little book. I don't think it's anybody's favorite book of the New Testament. It's certainly not written by the same author who wrote First Peter. And we did an episode on First Peter a while back. You 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 could make the argument that Peter, the original Peter, is behind First Peter. But if that's the case, then the original Peter is not behind Second Peter. It's probably later. It's probably in the tradition of writing books under the name of a famous person in order to address contemporary challenges. Um, I read an excellent commentary by Richard Bauckham, a really great New Testament scholar, and um, it, it really made me much more deeply appreciate Second Peter. And uh, Bauckham's basic argument is, is that Second Peter is trying to defend the preaching of the parousia at a point when it has still been delayed and there's a lot of doubt about it. And so it's it's a later generation um, concern about delayed parousia. And that's uh, Second Peter is where we get the reminder of of um, the uh, count the Lord's the Lord's uh, count the delay of the return of the Lord as His patience to give you time to repent. Um, so you can imagine some some time has to pa- pass and parousia hope has to be dying dying out. Oh, parousia, listeners, in case you don't know that that's the word for Jesus' second coming. And it seems that the very early, very very early church thought he would come again. Super Super soon, um, and obviously he still hasn't yet. So um, that's what Second Peter is dealing with. So the funny thing is that Second Peter appeals to the Transfiguration story as proof of his own reliability, the author's reliability in being a witness to Christ. Um, so here, I'll just read it. It's, this is from the first chapter. Uh, it, it writes: For not having followed sophisticated myths, we made known to you the power and parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ having rather been made eyewitnesses of that splendor. For accepting from God, Father, honor and glory, and the voice having been born to him by the majestic glory, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I am pleased. And we heard this voice, having been born from heaven, us being with him in the holy mountain. Well, that's, that's, that's unmistakably a reference to the transfiguration story, isn't it? And uh, it it's interesting that it denies that um, the transfiguration story is a sophisticated myth, the fabrication of sophists. Given that you've just acknowledged that Second Peter is pseudepigraphal, uh, and so it might be indulging a little bit in its own myth-making. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how do you understand this denial that the transfiguration story is not a sophisticated myth. Yeah, that that is the question. So I think there's good reason to believe, and and Bauckham also traces this out, that this the second Peter, the epistle, is downstream of the actual Peter. There is some sort of relationship in the community, the Roman church, a memory passed down. So I I, I don't think it's just making it up or claiming a famous name, uh, which happens a lot. There's a ton of you know falsely attributed letters and gospels that emerge in later centuries. Second Peter is is still early compared to those other pseudepigraphal things that were not taken into the canon. So uh, I'll I'll grant it that much. Um, Also, it's very clear that for us, the question is, well, but how do you know the transfiguration really happened? There were only three eyewitnesses there, and maybe this author is not really one of those eyewitnesses. It's clear at the time there was no real doubt about whether or not the transfiguration happened. The question was more what it meant. And I think the the rejection of the accusation that it's a sophisticated myth, um, you actually identified right at the beginning of our episode, Dad, by saying the transfiguration is rather baffling. It doesn't actually clear things up. You know, a sophisticated myth is supposed to solve your problem for you and tell you this is how it is and take away all your questions, whereas the transfiguration actually opens up more questions than it actually solves. What's interesting to me, actually, about the way this story is is talked about in second peter is that there is actually no clear reference to jesus visual appearance being altered so we have words like splendor and majestic glory though that that really refers to the father in heaven the closest we get to any description of jesus visual appearance is splendor but that's such a vague term it doesn't actually refer to his face or his clothing or anything like that 
The center of the story is actually the voice from heaven. This is my son, my beloved, in whom I am pleased. The voice takes center stage in the story. And I actually think that's really important in the ongoing developments of the early church community because, of course, a risen and ascended Lord is no longer available for the seeing. And Second Peter is coping with the parousia, which means the delay of the visible Lord coming back in a way that we can actually see him. So I think what's actually happening in Second Peter is transferring the center of the story from the visual alteration of Jesus that you can see, but actually only three people got to see. Well, three ordinary people, Moses and Elijah saw it, but only Peter, James, and John, not even all the disciples got to see the transfigured Jesus. But so the other nine didn't. And that's the condition that we're all in. Uh, it's sort of like uh, at the end of the Gospel of John, too, talking about how, you, or in, um, in um, I think in the Johannine letters, you have not seen him, but you love him. And, you know, I'm here to tell you about this because blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So I think this is speaking to a point where the emphasis has to actually be changed from the visual appearance of seeing Jesus to hearing Jesus, hearing hearing the word of the Lord. And um, and you can even see that, uh, interestingly, in the transfiguration story itself, the instruction from the cloud is not look at him and remember what you see, but listen to him. And that's going to be the command going forward. Listen to him. And listening to the word of the Lord is something you can do after you are no longer able to see him in ordinary or transfigured bodily form. Yeah, and you know, you you take that insight from Second Peter uh, uh, to bear upon the original telling of the story in Mark Mark eight and nine, uh, and you point out that in the whole uh, extraordinary sh- display of glory, gleaming and dazzling white like lightning, uh, that Jesus is transformed to to be, he is silent. Uh, and and Jesus's silence means that something is happening to him, and um, it's not Jesus who speaks in the original story, but it's the overshadowing cloud, uh, uh, and that likewise in Israel's imagination is not something unusual, but here in this story, this overshadowing cloud. This presence speaks, right? That it, the voice we hear from heaven, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And this parallels what happens during the baptism, where uh, Jesus neither says nor does anything during his baptism. The one who will go on to effect astonishing miracles is entirely passive entirely the recipient, the object of the action, not the subject. It is by being the object of the divine action that Jesus can become the subject of the action that follows, as the voice from heaven tells him who he is. You are my beloved son. The message which is reiterated now in the transfiguration to the disciples, uh, uh, three selected disciples. Uh, and then they are the ones who are commanded now, listen to him, right? And then I think you you make real theological hay out of this because you go on to say <laughs> how it changes the doctrine of God. I certainly do. <laughs> but uh, but I think I, I, am, I am only following what the uh, New Testament writers have already done in modifying the doctrine of God. Second Peter makes it plainest by simply saying, God, Father. Uh, very plainly. To talk about God is to talk about the Father now because the Father has a son. But you see it already in the baptism and the transfiguration. If if the cloud, which is the ultimate meteorological symbol of the Lord's presence throughout the entire Old Testament, I mean, supremely in Exodus, I spend quite a lot of time on this in the book, then for the cloud, which is clearly the Lord God of Israel to address someone as son, is to qualify himself as father. That that will take more unpacking because there is a tradition of, for instance, addressing the Davidic king as son. But it's clear that the baptism and transfiguration stories are trying to tell you this is more than simply a coronation ceremony. Something bigger is happening here when the cloud 
presence of God calls Jesus the his son, his beloved son, then he is in the same moment modifying himself to make himself not simply God, but God the Father. And of course, that becomes so central to Christian language and the doctrine of God and the, ultimately the doctrine of the Trinity. And, you know, you point out something that I've never noticed here, that the the um, conclusion of Jesus's speech in Mark 8.38, just before the Transfiguration episode, it concludes this way. I'm going to read from the Bible. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. End quote. And you point out that in the Gospel of Mark, this is the first instance of God being named as Father. And then, of mm -hmm. course, as you just pointed out, what immediately happens is the transfiguration where from the overshadowing cloud, the voice speaks, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Right, which is really interesting because, of course, in, in Mark, uh, Jesus' baptism is practically the first thing that happens. Uh, you know, John in the wilderness is the very first thing that happens. So we have got the voice from heaven has already announced a son. But it's kind of like Mark, with his habitual reserve, is holding back and giving you a chance to get used to Jesus before you are forced to draw the, the obvious corollary of Jesus being son, which is God being father. And that, again, only happens, as you say, after... Peter has correctly identified Jesus as the Christ. At that point, he, P Jesus is ready to, to talk about God as Father. And then the very next thing that happens is the cloud from heaven identifying his beloved son. Again, in, the, in a way, a parallel to the baptism. But now we have a little bit more information to fill in that whole story. So I guess, I, you know, you asked earlier about the method. I would say in addition to the, the cross-canonical or intertextual approach, I think absolutely in narratives, the order in which things happens is so essential to understanding the story. I mean, anyone who reads a novel knows you have to read the plot in order. You can't just skip around, you know, and, you know, start right. on page one and then go, go to 58, back to 36, forward to 119. You will not get the story. And so the, the more closely you read something like Mark and see why do things happen in the precise order that that they do. When is the first time something is mentioned? When is something repeated? How are like chiasm? That's the, the framing, you know, like A, B, A, you know, um, so there's like makes kind of an X or a cross in, in repeated things. That's so important to understanding the theological points that are being made. It's not just storytelling, but it is it is a, a structural encoding of the theological point, not just in, in a, a propositional or, or poetic form. Yeah, the the plot analysis, uh, you know, renders characters, renders figures, uh, and and that's exactly what happens in following the gospel narrative, that the uh, figures of Jesus, the beloved Son, and his heavenly Father are being uh, are being rendered for us precisely by the narrative action. Very good. Let's just kind of draw to a conclusion of this, Sarah with one more interesting and also very pregnant, for, I think, for the conclusion you're going to draw, which I'm still ignorant of, but I sense <laughs> that the episode in Acts chapter 1, uh, with its reference to the clouds, is also important for your uh, hypothesis about the transfiguration. Very much so. You are, are right to begin to get interested in the ascension. So you uh, you referred back to your dissertation, how you thought the, uh, or or I, I think this idea originally comes from Boltmann. He, he hypothesized that maybe the transfiguration was a displaced resurrection narrative that kind of got lost and then turned into a transfiguration story and plopped in the middle of Mark's gospel. Uh, New, New Testament scholarship since then has, has pretty well demolished that thesis. But the fact still remains, and I think your intuition originally was correct, is that there's some reason for seeing the glory of Jesus in the middle of the gospel and before the resurrection. But what is the relationship of the transfiguration to the resurrection? And I think that actually... Um, 
Again, I'm, I'm not going to give the full story away here, but I think that actually what we'll find much more fruitful is to see the relation of the transfiguration to the ascension. And that, in its way, opens up a whole nother topic. I mean, I've already, I have to admit, I've already been thinking of maybe doing a seven ways of looking at the ascension book <laughs> because um, I realized that maybe, I think it's maybe because Lutherans really don't like talking about the ascension because we're afraid of uh, Eucharistic controversies with the Reformed and the idea that the ascended Jesus is chained up in heaven and can't come to us in the body and the blood. Um, but um, I, if you think seriously about the transfiguration and the resurrection and the true bodiliness of Jesus, both as a human and as a uh, raised from the dead human, then at some point the ascension becomes absolutely necessary because the real body has to not be here anymore. Like it, it can't just dissolve or vanish. There's something has to actually happen with Jesus' body. And so the way that the ascension is talked about, I think, uh, has bears more relationship to what's happening in the transfiguration than specific to the resurrection itself. That is that is further to be developed. You know, I'll uh, just conclude our discussion about this with a little uh, tidbit. Um, in my uh, personal website, Theological Rambling section, I've been doing a series of reminiscences about my formative teachers, and I'm working on one right now about the Reformed theologian Paul Lehman who had a powerful impact upon me when I was a graduate student. And uh, he was a kind of crusty fellow who wasn't afraid to put a <laughs> upstart graduate student in his place, as he did to me several times. <laughs> and uh, one time he, uh, he, uh, he, he was talking about something, and he looked at me and said, the ubiquity of Christ's body is the stupidest damn idea Luther ever came up with. <laughs> and and okay. I was reflecting back about that, and I realized the importance of the doctrine of the ascension for the Reformed and also for Paul Lehman's own theology. So I think this is a topic we'll have to pursue in the future. Sarah, I'm just congratulating you on a very interesting scriptural analysis and interpretation of the transfiguration. I think it's just, a, it's, it's really outstanding. Well, thank you. Thank you. Obviously, your, your praise means a great deal to me. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. And so listeners, forgive me for making one more plug. Please follow the link in the show notes or Google Kickstarter, Sarah Henlicky Wilson Transfiguration. This book has seven rich chapters expositing the transfiguration with many of the things you've heard here, but so much more. You can't believe how much we actually left out of this episode. And it will tell you more about the liturgical history. There will be some liturgical elements in Included that you can use some original translations. There's so much cool stuff. So, um, and as if this wasn't enough of a plea, I will be bringing you a couple of bonus episodes on the Transfiguration with some other um, podcasts that I have recorded to really work up your appetites. So uh, please support. It would mean a lot to me. And I think you will not only have material enough to preach on the Transfiguration from seven years, I think this could probably carry you all the way to the end of your Transfiguration preaching career, even if you just got ordained last year so <laughs> <laughs> next time on the show we will be talking about confession and absolution thanks for listening to the queen of the sciences podcast for show notes and more visit our website queenofthesciences.com to find out more about what we do visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com finally please leave us a review on itunes and tell a friend about the show